0: good morning cross point welcome to our second service the sunny service well chosen let's pray together and then before we open the bible to uh, continue our regular series i i feel a christian and friendly and pastoral obligation to talk to you a little bit about the state of our nation and what we as christians should do about it let's pray Father, thank you for so many blessings. This this wonderful sunlight is just one of the gifts that you've given to the world you made and you love. Thank you that we can gather. We're one of the very few congregations in the United States that can gather even in the depth of winter and sit outside and sing songs to you and try to encourage each other and hear your word. Make us wise and loving and humble. Shape us, Lord, we pray, not in the image of our culture. Help us, Jesus, hear your voice above all the others. All the static, all the noise, all the lies. Help us hear you and follow you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I'm a pastor, not a pundit. If you've ch- attended church here for even six months, you've probably noticed my. Commitment, as I understand it, is to teach you the Word of God, not provide a running commentary on the world's events. For one thing, we would never be done. The world is endlessly difficult. It's filled with violence, filled with disappointment, filled with sorrow. Today, though, I'm going to make an exception because of what happened in our country earlier this week. The reason is very specific it's not only because it's so unprecedented and was so dangerous. It was because of so much that what happened in our nation's capital was done by people who were naming Christ. One of the reasons that pundits get in trouble is they rush to make judgments and make bold pronouncements without having all the facts. My pastor used to say, there's always one fact you don't know that changes the whole story. So I'm not standing here in a full possession of the facts, but I can tell you that I saw an image that broke my heart It's so contrary to the gospel, it would be hard to imagine one that was more so. Whoever was responsible for it, I saw in the crowd that someone had erected a cross and someone, perhaps someone else, had erected a gallows with a noose hanging from it. And to see those two symbols in the same place, presumably erected by the same people, whoever placed those symbols there Broke my heart. The cross is a historic symbol of our faith, but it represents Jesus, the Son of God, dying for people. A noose has a long history of hatred, of mobs taking justice into their own hands and killing people they believe are their enemies. Those two things cannot coexist. We cannot serve and name and worship a dying Savior while determining to be murderers ourselves, even if it's murder in our heart, as Jesus taught us. And I'm saying this to you, not as a word of correction, because you have been enormously Christian through this entire pandemic. I'm so blessed by your patience, by your kindness, by your love, by your faithfulness. I've been enormously blessed. I've prayed for it every day, but I've been... Even as I pray for it, I've been amazed by how God has answered, that God has kept us unified, because what unites us is not a unanimity on political points of view. What unites us is Christ. And in that mob, we now know that at least one of the most notorious people that has since been arrested and been brought to justice was someone who so claimed Christ that he distinguished himself, and now he's quite sorry. Sorry. And many of these people are asking forgiveness and saying that they've embarrassed the country and their family and themselves. But one of them is very publicly and professes to be a member of a Baptist church in Florida. So without preaching a first sermon, I just want to read four passages of Scripture with you and remind you what kind of people we are supposed to be. What kind of command we have been given by the one who died on the cross for us because it's not up to us how to behave. It's not up to us how to feel or how to act. All of that has already been given to us in the Bible. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22, we may be tested in the years to come where we will find our ultimate authority, whether we will actually submit to the Word of God and obey it even when it's unpleasant even when we find it impractical or difficult. Here are one of four passages, first in Matthew 22, things we are commanded to do and commanded to be as Christians. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is so foundational that Bible readers for centuries have called this the great commandment. Christians are to be characterized by loving the Lord their God with all that they have and loving their neighbor. Jesus explains to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, maybe somebody very much, very different from us. We are to love them, not supremely, but we are to love God supremely and our neighbor as we love ourselves. Look a little further in the gospel of Matthew to Matthew 28 now. Matthew 28 and verse 16. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage is so important that it also has been given a name. This is the Great Commission. We begin with the supreme love for God and a self-sacrificing love for our neighbors, and then we go into all nations, all ethnic groups, all languages, all systems of belief that would keep people from knowing the Savior who made them and loved them, we go to them. And we make disciples, not of ourselves, but disciples of Jesus, and teach them to obey what Jesus commanded. Look a little further in your New Testament to the book of Philippians. Those are the instructions of Jesus to his first disciple. These next two readings will tell us what that looks like in the life of an actual ordinary Christian church. Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul wrote, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, But much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Want a hard commandment? Here it is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is where we're going to be in the sermon in this same book. This is Paul's instructions to a young, frightened, easily discouraged pastor telling him what priorities the local congregation should have. First Timothy chapter two, verse one. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who were in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So how do disciples act? We act first with a supreme love for God. We love Him with all that we have, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All that we have loves Him first. Because we love Him so much, we generously and courageously and humbly extend that love toward God others, toward our neighbors, different as they may be, hateful as they may be. We love them because He first loved us, and we love Him more than anyone. In love, we tell them the good news of Jesus. We don't let any barriers stop us. We extend the name of Jesus to all nations that all may love Him as He taught us to love Him first. As we do that, we humbly submit ourselves to Christ because he humbled himself by taking an actual human body and dying in a really violent way on an actual Roman cross so that we could be saved from our sins. Because he is so humble, we determine among ourselves to also be humble and to make him the sinner and make him the cause of our unity. We resolve to do things without grumbling and disputing so that in a world that is increasingly dark, we may shine his light, not our own. And finally, in this world, even if there be tyrants in the world, we pray for kings and for all who are in authority. We don't pray against them, we pray for them so that God may work in their hearts and in our lives and in our society in such a way that we can live a life filled with peace so that we can be quiet, so that we can be godly, so that we can be dignified and continue extending to the world the message of the Son of God interceding for sinners like we once were. Bring us into the family of God and save us. This is who Christians are. This is what Christians have always done. At the end of his epistle, John warns the Christians reading the first epistle of John to guard themselves against idolatry. Anything but simple, humble obedience to Jesus in these passages and many more like them is idolatry. Let's keep hearing the voice of the Good Shepherd. Let's keep doing things in a way that is pleasing in the sight of God and pleasing in the sight of people, not so that they will admire us, but so that they will love Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, that's my need, both publicly and privately, in the quiet of my heart and my mind. I need to obey all of these things that you've told us, and so do my brothers and sisters here, so I pray that we would. And when we stumble and when we forget, when we take matters into our own hands and act selfishly, act without humility, act without love, I pray that we would be quick to return to you, seek your forgiveness, and get right back in step with you, Lord Jesus, so that the world may know how great you are. Keep us humble, keep us loving, keep us evangelizing, and keep us prayerful, I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. Amen. Now, if you'll turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we've been talking about contentment. We talked about contentment first against anxiety and fear. People who are troubled by anxiety, as I often have been, cannot be content. They are continually fearful and anxious. Last week, we talked about how we can fight for contentment in the face of injustice, especially when we have been mistreated, when we have been abused, when we have been sinned against. How do we find contentment even in those circumstances? And today, we're going to talk about the measure of contentment, the arena of contentment in which it may be the hardest place to achieve of all. And we're going to talk about it because this is part of growing up. And growing in contentment, as we're going to discover here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, may be the final step in maturity for most Christians. And this is most easily seen in the lives of children. Sometimes cartoons and songs and poems kind of idealize childhood, and just present childhood as this wonderful golden age where everything is wonderful and carefree. And even when I was a kid, I was seeing that schlocky, corny kind of stuff and thinking the people who produced this stuff were obviously never children or don't remember what it's actually like to be a kid. Part of growing up is, I don't know if you remember, feeling kind of miserable and panic-stricken pretty much all the time at any moment probably most easily seen at the ice cream shop. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen it two or three times. Family's got just a little staircase of kids. One of the kids is given a double-decker ice cream cone. He's on his way out the door, and Big Brother checks little sister, and she spills her ice cream, and it goes splat down on the street, and after that follows something that looks like a Greek tragedy. There is just immediate angst and heartbreak. There is an outcry for the authorities represented by the parents to step in and rain justice down upon this Philistine. Uh, There might even be, on one occasion, I even saw a little violence. She took her ice cream cone and mashed him in the side of the head with it. And this is what makes childhood miserable. You don't have any perspective. You think that your momentary suffering Is certainly the end of life and that things are never going to get better. Have you seen these things? You see them at Christmas time. The kids are given some big collective gift for all of them like a video game console and there are shouts of joy. They race around the living room. They do a little spontaneous dance together and within an hour they want to kill each other because they can't agree who gets to play and which game they're going to use. That's childhood one of the reasons it's tough, and the reason kids act like that is because they're not contented with the things that they have, and neither are people. There's not one person listening to me, and there's certainly not the case of the man talking to you that is perfectly contented all the time with his cash, with his possessions, with his car, with his lifestyle, with his home, with his clothing. There is a world of wealth and possessions and stuff to buy, to use, to enjoy, to acquire that makes it exceedingly hard for people to be contented. And that's what we're going to talk about. 1 Timothy chapter 6 I want to show you, beginning in verse 3, that Paul, as he begins to talk to Timothy about contentment with money and possessions, the first thing he's going to tell them is that the lure of money, power, influence, reputation, attracts false Christian teachers. Part of the problem that we saw, part of the tragedy on Wednesday, and the reason I'm addressing it is that At least some of that was fueled by pastors, by pastors. In one case in particular, a distinctly unqualified and ungodly man who spent months stirring people up and inciting exactly what happened, used the power of the internet to gain fame and notoriety and prestige for himself and sent people into chaos. He may even have sent a few of them into injury. 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us that because of the lure of money, it has always been that way. The last line in 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. That's the day we're living in right now. Here's the money connection, watch. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. The condition of these false teachers and the people they're listening is, their mind is fallen They are depraved in mind. Their their thinking is evil, and the reason is they're also deprived of the truth. Because they don't know what's true and what's right, their thinking is wrong. And here's the money connection. These people, depraved in mind, deprived of truth, Paul says they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In other words... It hasn't been recently, it's not only the scandal-ridden TV preachers, it's not the internet hucksters and grifters that use the Bible to attract fame and money to themselves from the first century, from within the lifetime of the people who knew Jesus. Paul warns Timothy, there are going to be certain teachers who use teaching of Christ and twist it do not teach the truth, and the reason is they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they imagine that teaching things about God and pretending to be godly themselves will help them gain something. They'll gain a lifestyle. They'll get rich. They'll get acceptance. They'll get prestige from people. What I'm trying to tell you is that money is an important topic because false teachers are often motivated by personal gain. A hallmark that you're going to have to watch out for your entire Christian life is that the Christian church has always been subjected to imposters and false teachers who don't know the truth, have no interest in the truth. They want to gain by their teaching. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, puts our feet on the right path. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What Paul is saying here is that these false teachers are using false teaching to gain wealth, but if you can manage to actually be godly and to be content with money, you'll have real wealth. That real, genuine wealth comes when with your godliness you also have contentment godliness after all is god's purpose for us first timothy chapter 4 verse 7 says train yourself for godliness if you follow me a family picture will make this very very simple we call god father because that is his favorite way to explain himself to us God is king, God is creator, God is a righteous judge. There are many things that are true of God. Just like you, many true things can be said of him and they're all necessary to describe the God who actually exists. So God is a judge and God is a king and God is the creator. But his favorite way of explaining himself to the people he loves is he loves to call himself your father. And if God is your father, the reason that God has brought you into his family is to grow you up to be like him. This is what every good and loving parent wants to do for their sons and daughters. If a mom or a dad has a child, they are trying to raise them up with the good character traits that they themselves have. If, for instance, mom is a truthful person, A mom raising a little boy is not going to tolerate lying in that child. She is going to continually be correcting him and disciplining him and teaching him to be truthful. In the same way, when God, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, brings you into his family, you have the forgiveness of your sins. You become his son or daughter. What he wants you to do is grow into godliness, but it takes purpose it takes effort. That's why Paul told Timothy, train yourself for godliness. And 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a word play. Paul is saying to Timothy, the false teachers imagine that a false godliness is the way to get rich. Let me tell you who really is rich. People who are godly who also learn to be contented, now they're really wealthy and contentment with money may be the last and the most difficult step any of us ever take in our spiritual de- in our spiritual development much like those kids it is usually a lifetime journey for Christians to learn to be contented with cash to learn to as life ebbs and flows as they gain and lose as possessions come in and out of their hands to learn to be contented at every moment. In other words, to be satisfied with God and what God has provided day by day, gain by gain, loss by loss for most people, well, that's hard. And here's Paul telling us how that happens. In the next three verses, in First Timothy 6, verses 7, 8, and 9... Paul is going to give Timothy some positive direction. He's going to remind him why Timothy needs to grow contented and he needs to teach the people in his church to be contented. But rather than teach them in the positive direction that Paul wrote them, I think they're more clearly seen if we consider the sin of not doing what Paul said. A lot of people don't even know what this is, but some of you will remember the negative of a photograph. You know what I'm talking about? Where black and white are very stark and they're reversed. I think looking at what Paul says next as the common sins that haunt my life, that stalk my relationship with Jesus and yours, when we read what Paul says and we see what it costs not to do it, when we see the way that it is generally disobeyed, disobeyed, we're going to see three sins that kill contentment. Here's the first, 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. That is so true, that is so wise, that is so well known that there's even a saying in the United States that paraphrases this verse. What do we say? can't take it with you. And that's obviously true. As pastors have joked for generations, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You'll see the survivors fighting over the stuff. You'll never see the deceased taking it with them. Here's the error, the sin, the mistake that people make when they don't achieve contentment is we forget that we can't take it with. We spend so much time acting as if what we could gather together in this world is all that matters. We spend so much time and energy devoting ourselves to it that as if that was the only thing that this life and the next had to offer. As a pastor, because you deal with people, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people I've dealt with in 30 years of pastoring, you get invited into people's lives sometimes at the best and the worst times in their life. And in those times, sometimes you really learn things and sometimes almost comically you're, you see things that really burn biblical truth into your mind. First Timothy 6 verse 7 says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But every once in a while as a pastor who's officiated more funerals than I can remember. You see sometimes that people, even in death, act as if they could take it with them. Because one thing about funerals, people use possessions and symbols to pay tribute to their loved ones, and sometimes the people who are deceased, they choose a few symbols to communicate what they love to the world. Here's one case I saw that really stuck with me. A pastor friend of mine in West Texas had his name on loan to the funeral home. If anybody came in and did not have a pastor, he would gladly help this family. So we got a call. We need to come out. It's just a graveside service. An actual literal cowboy died in West Texas, and a few people were gathered at the graveside, and my friend went to officiate. Never having met anybody at the graveside, he wanted to know at least a little bit of the deceased, so he talked to them, and then he went to look into the casket. And here is a little dried-up cowboy in the casket with, in the front pocket of his Western shirt, a pack of Lucky Strikes. If you don't know what Lucky Strikes are, that is a very old, classic brand of cigarettes. Imagine that your dying wish had been When I am gone and when people come to say goodbye, make sure you put a pack of Lucky Strikes in my front pocket, because I want people to know how much I love them. I wonder if it was Lucky Strikes that put them in the casket. (laughs) Could have been. Now, that's pretty comical. That story kind of circulated in our circles because somebody made that choice. But I've seen something like that, maybe not quite that dramatic, many, many times. And it's just symptomatic of how deeply people get attached to things on this earth when the truth is, whatever you have, great or small, you will take nothing with you. Verse 8 is very simple and very direct. It's probably the hardest verse to believe. It's actually written as a commandment. It's not a saying, it's a commandment, it's a priority. It's Paul resetting Timothy's understanding of how much was enough. 1 Timothy 6 verse 8 says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, that's easy to read, but I want you to read it carefully and ask yourself if your life matches up with what you just read. See, anytime a pastor talks about money, there are so many hucksters, grifters, and fakes in the Christian world, as Paul acknowledged in the first few verses of this chapter, that people get uneasy. I'm not talking to you in an interest of personal gain. I'm trying to show you something that actually surprised me when I studied it again this week. Paul said, here's the Christian standard. If you have food and clothing, and in Greek, the words that Paul chose obviously include shelter. What Paul is saying in the world of his time is, if we have the basic necessities of life covered, we will be what? content." Content. We will be content. We will strive to be satisfied. We will learn contentment regarding our money and our stuff. Here's our standard. If we have food, clothing, and shelter, if we have the basics covered, we will decide, we will commit ourselves to being contented then. Here then is the second sin, the second error. We decide that it takes too much for us to be content we decide taking cues from the culture that we will have the basics covered and then this and then this other thing and then this newer thing and then this better thing and then this other thing and then if we can ever get there, we will be content. Those of you who are in your late 20s or over 30, have you noticed that the line continually moves? Those of you who are very young, let me give you advice from further down the road. When you're very young, you think to yourself, if I could only achieve this. The basics are covered. The Bible says your priority as a Christian is if the basics are covered, you should be satisfied with that. But you say, I want this other thing as well. And God is not opposed to it. I'm going to show you that in a moment. But the line of satisfaction continually moves forward. The reason for that is we have decided that it takes too much for us to be content. Proverbs 23 is one of the most colorful proverbs in the whole Bible, these verses. And we're going to read them together. If you have your outline or you have your app, I want you to read Proverbs 23, verses 4 and five with me ready I'll read it first and then you can read it with me Proverbs writes uh, the man writing Proverbs says don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better stop as soon as your eyes fly to it it disappears for it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky is that picturesque enough for you Money is elusive. Money is fragile. Just like that child's ice cream cone, it can all be done in a moment. So here is God's instruction. Read together with me Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. The Bible says, don't wear yourself out to get rich. Because you know better, stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears for it makes wings for itself. And flies like an eagle to the sky. How many of you have had something that you love very much taken from you in a moment? Happens quick. On several occasions, I've been called to the scene of an accident and stood beside a shocked person who was perfectly fine. Their incredibly expensive car saved them. They're healthy, they're fine, but they're looking with hollow eyes at that jewel of a car that is now very obviously totaled. And the cops are standing there going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's totaled. We're going to take this thing away in pieces. That is the nature of all earthly possessions. So the council is don't wear yourself out to get rich. Don't decide that it takes more than the basics for you to be contented with God and contented with what He has provided. Now look in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. I want you to see that and just sit with that for a second. Paul says that the desire to get rich alone... God is not opposed to money, as we're going to read here. God himself is abundantly and perfectly wealthy. It is not money itself. It is things about money that usually happen with money that are so dangerous. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Are you seeing how heavy this verse is? The desire for money is a temptation. It's a snare. It plunges people into senseless and harmful desires. It leads them to ruin and to destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils that verse is usually misquoted people say that money is the root of all evil and it's not true god himself is wealthy god has all the wealth in the universe he shares part of what he has with anyone he pleases and god himself is not evil god can enjoy all of the wealth of the world that he made with no problem whatsoever according to verse 10 study the bible with me what is the problem with money where does all kind of evil come from It's not money, it's the love of money. What's the problem? Money's very, very lovable. I don't know if you've noticed. Money is the most endearing, beautiful, and attractive thing to most people in the world. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Listen, this is going to talk about heresy and apostasy and leaving the faith, leaving Jesus. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What's the error here? We think we can love money and get away with it. And Christian, you can't. Listen to me. Our contemporary world, especially in coastal Orange County, where we've developed a lifestyle that has so much more than the basics that most homes that have several adults in them have a car per adult. That's just standard. This church, like every church in the United States, needs parking in much greater abundance than almost any church anywhere else in the world because, like every American church, we have families of four coming in four different cars. Dad comes early to play in the band. Mom comes early to teach in Sunday school. The kids wander in 20 minutes late, each in their own car. That's extraordinary. That's amazing in the history of the world. And having so much puts us in real peril because we grow so accustomed to comfort, to have more than we actually need. We grow so accom- so accustomed to these extraordinary blessings from God because it's all His. And He's placed us here in this place, in this time, that if we're not very, very careful, we think we can fall in love with all of those things. And we alone in the history of the world will be special enough, strong enough, wise enough, smart enough to get away from it. And no one, no one can get away with loving God and money at the same time. That's why it says in verse 11, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Timothy don't have anything to do with loving money. When you start loving and trusting money, run for your life. Paul is getting all of that from Jesus who said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God in money. In Jesus' explanation, God is a master and money is a master. Listen, Christian, that means that all of your life, until you see Jesus and you're safe in heaven, you're going to have a false boss. A false master called money, called wealth, called achievement, calling out for the best of your attention, calling out for most of your time, calling out for your dependence and your loyalty and your very best effort, telling you that if you can earn enough and have enough and enjoy enough, then you'll be safe, then you'll be happy. That is the lie that the master called money offers to people. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Three mistakes that destroy contentment. You falsely believe. You act like you're going to take it with you. You decide in your mind that you need just a little bit more before you're satisfied with God and what He provided, and you wear yourself out trying to get rich, and you think that you'll be unique in the history of the disciples of Jesus, and you can love Jesus and money at the same time, and you can't. Now, at the end of this chapter, and this is the end of the sermon, Paul's going to return again to the idea of money. He's going to tell Timothy, a young pastor, what to tell the people in his congregation to do that actually have money. He's going to call them the rich. And again, all this time later, all the time that has passed between the writing of this epistle and this day, if you and I could meet the people considered rich in the time of Paul, we would think most of them were quite poor and suffering a great deal. Biblically speaking, the rich is someone who has more than the basics. It is someone who has food and shelter, who is sheltered, clothed, and well-fed, and has more than that. By that standard, I'm rich. By that standard, almost all of you are as well. Not every person in this congregation is wealthy. By American standards, very few people in this congregation are wealthy. But by biblical standards, which is, if you have more than you actually need, you're wealthy. Most of us are rich, so we should listen to what Paul says here. One of the saddest things to me about the pandemic personally is, I don't know about you, I fell into the, ba- into the arms of a bag of Doritos during the pandemic. And in a time of worldwide suffering, I actually got a little fatter. You know how extraordinary blessed that is? That in a time where people in previous pandemics suffered and starved and died by the millions, I got a little chunkier? In the ways of the world, I have more than I need, and probably so do you. So we should listen to these last three verses. I'm in verse 17. And these three admonitions for people who have more than they need being told what to do, this is a way you can actually tell if you're contented or not. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. People who have more than they need in this world tend to be a little proud of it. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's another thing about money. It teaches you, it seduces you into trusting it. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Don't trust money, trust God. Don't put your hope on your money, put your hope in God. Verse 17 says, "...who richly provides us with everything to enjoy." And that tells me that God isn't opposed to the rich. The rich are rich because God wanted them to be rich, because God blessed them and allowed them to be rich. But here's how you can tell if you're actually contented. Contented people are God-centered and grateful. They trust God. When they enjoy things like those kids unwrapping that presence, they're grateful for it. They don't give it their allegiance. They recognize that God has provided that to enjoy and they thank Him for it. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Number two, contented people, are generous people people who are contented whether they are poor or rich use what they have whether it's a lot or a little they use what they have to do good works they are generous and they are always ready to share this goes back to the kind of kids that god is trying to raise those of you who are raising children or can envision yourself someday soon being a parent, do you want to raise stingy kids? Is anyone interested in having a son or daughter who continually says, no, you can't have any, it's mine? No, that's actually one of the first things we try to train out of children. Two of the first words most kids learn to say are no and mine. You ever think about how selfish those two early words are? No, I won't do what you want. I'm going to be in charge. And no, you can't have any. It's mine. That's in the human heart. That's the love of money from the age of two. That's why it takes a lifetime to grow out of it. People who are contented recognize that anything they have Great or small, has come from God, was given to them by God, so that they could enjoy it, and they use what they have (verse 18) to do good. To be rich, if they are rich with money, now they use it to be rich in good works. They are always generous, and they are always ready to share. And this has nothing to do with the amount. One of the blessings that God gave me in life, and I had nothing to do with it, it's a pure gift from Him, is I was raised outside of this country. And I was raised among people. Some were very wealthy, but the majority of them were poor. And I learned from personal experience, even before I knew the Bible verses that explained to me the truth that I was seeing lived out in front of me, that you can be contented with much and you can be contented with little. I learned that you don't have to be rich to be stingy. I learned that you don't have to be rich to be generous either. I've seen in some of the hard places in Mexico, and particularly in Cuba, I have seen people living on the very edge of barely having enough for themselves be enormously generous. And the offering they gave in su- that Sunday in their little church, that little bit of money would be meaningless to you and me. We might have it rolling around in the ashtray of our car, but to them the proportion was so extraordinary. It was like watching the widow in Jesus' day give her tiny little offering and have Jesus say she gave more than all the rest of them. It's a matter not of amount, it's a matter of proportion. It's a matter of deciding where your treasure is going to be and whether you're going to be contented enough to give some of it away. Whatever else you say about yourself, whatever contentment you claim for yourself, if you are not a generous giver, you're not actually contented at all. You're not generous and you're not ready to share in the words of verse 18 because you don't actually think there will be enough for you. And Paul says in verse 19, he sets our eyes on eternity. He tells us that people who are generous, who are ready to share, are doing something that goes beyond this earth. It says when people are generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. In other words, they're giving it away on earth, but it's being stored up in heaven so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul's talking about is eternal life. He is echoing the words of Jesus who said in the same passage in Matthew chapter 6 that I quoted to you, to not store up treasure here, but to store it up in heaven. Paul is saying that when people who have more than enough for themselves are quick to give it away, to place it in the service of others, to give it away for the extension of the gospel, to start churches like the one Timothy was pastoring, that goes beyond them. That is something that they can hold on to later in the real life, which is eternal life. You see, church, one of the great lies about giving is that when you give it, it's gone. When you give something away and place it in the Lord's service, when you're generous toward God, as Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, when you give decidedly your offering to spread the Gospel from this corner or around the world to missionaries, when you give it to bring relief to the poor, to bring relief in the good news of Jesus and the love of the Father to victims, when you give it away, it's out of your hands, but this verse tells me it's never really gone. It goes into the kingdom. It goes into the preaching of the gospel. It goes to save lives. It goes to help fill up heaven. And someday you'll see the reward of your own sacrifice. My invitation to you as this pandemic drags on, and boy, has it been hard. My family personally, we have absolutely no complaints. We have every reason we've ever had and more to be grateful. But I know from talking to so many of you week by week, I know how hard this has been. My prayer for you is that you will fight for your contentment. That as money and possessions come in and out of your hands, as you move your standard of living forward and backward, depending on what life brings you and how God directs you, that you will trust the Lord and take God at His word and fight for your contentment. It is the Only way to live, to receive things gratefully from His hand, to remember that He has promised to provide for you, and that the little you can do here and now will make a difference forever. That's what it means to be with money contented. Let's pray together. Christian, can I just give you a moment to talk to the Lord about the state of your heart and your contentment with your stuff? Are you satisfied? Are you peaceful? something you have to learn. It's something you have to train for. It's something you have to fight for. It can be a daily struggle, but how are you doing today? How are you doing right now? Father, teach us to be contented. Forgive us and keep us away from the lure and the danger of loving money, loving stuff, Loving the lifestyle that that can give. Lord, as you increase our lifestyle, help us also increase the standard of our generosity. Teach us to be contented with what you provide day by day and make us generous. Make us rich in good works with the possessions you've given us that enrich us on earth. Help us to be rich in good works so that you may be pleased so that we may be like you. Teach us, Lord, to be godly. Teach us to be content. We pray in Jesus' name. And cross voice said, amen. amen.